0: The Good Old Grateful Dead cast, the official podcast of the Grateful Dead. I'm Rich Mahan with Jesse Jarno, exploring the music and legacy of the Grateful Dead for the committed and the curious. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow deadheads, welcome to season six of the Good Old Grateful Dead cast. I'm your co-host, Rich Mahan. As always, thank you very much for tuning in. This week, we've got a second episode of a three-show run focusing on the Grateful Dead and their association with Madison Square Garden, and specifically, the shows featured in the new box set In and Out of the Garden, Madison Square Garden 81, 82, and 83. Head on over to dead.net slash deadcast. Check out all of our past episodes, including complete seasons one through five. You can link from there to your favorite podcasting platform so you can listen where you like to listen. Please help our podcast by subscribing, hitting that like button, and leave us a review. Thank you very much. Have you checked out the transcripts we have available for many of the episodes, seasons one through five? Well, head over to dead.net slash deadcast dash index. Click the transcript link on the episode you'd like to explore. Hey, the all-new Grateful Dead box set release is upon us in and out of the garden, Madison Square Garden, 81, 82, 83. It has 17 CDs from six previously unreleased concerts, Recorded live in New York City at Madison Square Garden between 1981 and 1983. Also available is a great breakout, Madison Square Garden, New York, New York, 3981. A three CD set featuring one full show from the box. Both titles are available as of September 23rd and are available at dead.net. Check out the Grateful Dead server on Discord. Download the Discord app on your mobile device or computer, search for the public Grateful Dead server, click the Join button, then find the Deadcast channel and chat with fellow heads about the latest episode you just listened to. Jesse and I are over there from time to time to answer questions, so we hope to see you over there. Have you checked out Playing in the Band yet? It's an interactive web-based mixing board that allows you to jam along with the Grateful Dead and experiment with their music like you're in the studio with them. You can mute the channel of your choice and fill in for any member of the Dead or press the solo button on any channel to listen and learn or duet. We have five songs from the 827-72 Vanita, Oregon show ready for you to explore and jam along with at dead.net slash band Well, everybody loves a good bust out, and boy, does this episode have a bunch of those for you. What was it about Madison Square Garden that made it ripe for the Grateful Dead to debut new songs? Maybe if they could make it there, they could make it anywhere? Oof. Here's Jesse Jarno.
1: The Grateful Dead began September 1982 with one of their periodic incursions into the mainstream. Over to Nightline with Sam Donaldson.
2: Joining us now live from station KGO-TV in San Francisco is guitarist Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead, who played at Woodstock in 1969 and will be at the US Festival or the US Festival in San Bernardino later this weekend. Ah yes, the US Festival.
3: Helen Regional Park in San Bernardino County over the Labor Day weekend. Many critics of the festival said it couldn't be done that the day of the big Woodstock-style music festival was over. But the Us Festival proved him wrong. It turned out to be the biggest rock show since Woodstock, more than 13 years ago. And in many ways, it was even more successful. And it all began with Steve Wozniak, founder of Apple Computers, who had a dream of uniting America through song and proving that the most important thing in the 80s will be our ability to work together.
1: Absolutely was. Back to Sam in the studio. Well, now, you improvise a lot. You
2: just get out there and you just go on for 20, 30 minutes uh, just improvising. That's right. And your fans, uh, known as the Deadheads, uh, seem to love that. Why do you think that is? Why don't they want to hear a familiar song just the way they have a a tape of it? A sense of adventure, I hope.
4: You know, uh, something like that. Kind of for the same reasons that we do it, to see what's going to happen, and that it makes the music unique to each situation as well. If we're sensitive enough, the music that arrives belongs uniquely to that situation and that audience and that dynamic and so forth, you know.
1: At the Us Festival, that situation and dynamic would certainly be unique, with the Dead playing a breakfast set at 9.30 in the morning. It wasn't ideal, but it was an adventure. Earlier that spring, on WRNW in Rochester, Jerry Garcia articulated some of what made the Dead different from most of the other artists playing on the Us Festival... But not as different as you'd think
4: and we think of ourselves as a live act you know and I think our fans mostly do too and re- records are an interesting thing to do and to try things out but records have their own reality in America and, like, and you know like anybody who makes records we do participate some in that idea of hot single is a neat kind of, it's a nice form of American music you know a concise three-minute pop tune or whatever. It's always been part of what we've tried to do, for sure. Because, I mean, after all, we're Americans.
1: It was certainly an unusual landscape in which to continue to be the Grateful Dead. By 1982, the Dead had outlasted virtually all of their peers. Jefferson Starship was still setting its own space pop course. That year, Grace Slick rejoined the band and they released Winds of Change, addressing the post-punk, new-wave, proto-metal 80s in their own way. This is Out of Control. Okay, hey, that's actually kind of bitchin'. Winds have changed, hit the top thirty with a bullet.
4: I'm very happy that things are the way they are, and and, and the amount of latitude and freedom we get because of not being a t- tied to that, you know, the ephemeral success of the, the single. You know what I mean? It's like we're we're not because we're not tied to that kind of a, a program or a, a repertoire. You know what I mean? It gives us tremendous freedom, which is uh, I appreciate it, mm-hmm. but. Geez, we we certainly wouldn't refuse a single, you know, a, a successful single or so. Even if it happened, it would should sure be fun,
1: and maybe not out of the question. By some accounts, 1982 was the peak of rock and roll as chart-topping popular music. Yeah, I in
5: 1982.
1: Joan Jett's I Love Rock and Roll spent a month and a half at the top of the Hot 100. So did Survivor's Eye of the Tiger.
4: Somewhere in the course of every album we've ever made, there's like the record that our friends and and our associates and ourselves, we start thinking "Oh, well, this is going to be the single, you know, and uh,
1: we think that way. As it happens, Jerry Garcia also co-wrote a ubiquitous top ten hit in 1982, just a few months after that interview, though it took the dead a little while to manifest it in the top ten acknowledged by Consensus American Reality. An early version of Touch of Grey, recorded in late August 1982 on the Beyond Description box set. It would take another half decade for the band to get the song out on a record, but it was a hit of a different kind. In 1982, besides incursions like the Us Festival, the Grateful Dead were pretty much off the radar. Even to longtime deadheads, it might not be obvious what was unfolding, but in 1982, the Grateful Dead were, as the kids say, back on their bullshit, once again building their own reality. We will get
6: by. We will get by.
1: grateful lead archivist and legacy manager David Lemieux.
7: I've always loved the fall tour of 82. They started, I guess, well, they did the Vanita stuff in Seattle, and then they hit Florida, and they played some great shows in Florida, and then they just moved their way up. And they played Boston. They played in, a great show in Maine, and then a couple of nights at the Garden, they played Syracuse. They played the Carrier Dome that tour at the end, and it was interesting because they a few months earlier played Syracuse in the Little Arena. This is Garcia on
1: WRNW again for May 1982.
4: There's a certain rhythm to our touring. We Typically we go out and do somewhere between, say, 12 and 20 days. Right about that. And the pace will be kind of like uh, uh, two two shows and a, and a day off. And then we'll come home for a couple of weeks. And we'll go out again for another week. And then we'll come home for another two weeks. And, like that. So there's a certain Uh, that makes it so that we stay hot, we can keep our edge.
1: When the band pulled into Madison Square Garden for a pair of shows just before the Autumn Equinox in 1982, now on In and Out of the Garden, that describes their touring pattern stretching back the past few months, or far longer if you count Garcia's side trips. It had been a year and a half since the dead themselves had last officially played Manhattan at the March 1981 garden shows we covered last time. But like we've been saying, The Dead were a New York band in many regards, playing again and again and again within striking distance of NYC public transportation systems. They passed through NASA Coliseum in May 1981, and again in April 82. Jerry Garcia brought his solo electric band through the Palladium in November 81, and then came through twice more as an acoustic duo with John Kahn in April and again in June. Bobby and the Midnight hit the Palladium in February, and again in June 1982, plus five additional shows on Long Island and in Passaic. Between those, Robert Hunter played The Other End on Bleecker Street. If you were really on the ball, maybe you were in the audience for the Acoustic Dead set when they played on Tomorrow with Tom Snyder in Spring 81, or when Weir and Garcia played on David Letterman the next year. And if you were a super-duper insider, maybe you saw The Dead at the Savoy Theater on 44th Street at their extra-late-night session on May 9th, 1981, When John Belushi joined them for vintage oldies like Twist and Shout and Walkin' the Dog, and that's not counting any musical hangs at Belushi and Dan Aykroyd's unmarked blues bars downtown, or when they were supposed to have played on Saturday Night Live for a third time on April 18, 1991, canceled due to a writers' strike. Something else happened during this period. MTV launched on Jerry Garcia's 39th birthday, August 1st, 1981. Happy birthday, Garcia. I hope you like it. In the next years, the cable channel would transform popular music in the United States and around the world. And though in 1982, the dead would debut the song with which they would eventually storm MTV, nearly all of their plans that year, and really every other year, pointed in exactly the opposite direction. The Grateful Dead weren't gearing up to record a hot new single or make a video, sometimes consciously, sometimes not. While they were in some ways simply manifesting their own version of reality, they were nurturing an ecosystem that had started to grow around them as far back as their first year as a band, but had now spun well beyond them. (laughs) Shakedown Street, from Road Trips Volume 4, Number 4, recorded April 6th, 1982 at the Spectrum in Philadelphia, a year when the parking lot bazaar outside dead shows began to expand, and the touring scene around the dead heated up. The Grateful Dead had wanted to escape the record industry in the mid-70s by starting their own label, but they actually succeeded in the 80s by simply ignoring the industry for the better part of a decade. At the core was the idea that the dead now had an audience that really deeply listened to their music, so much so that it was important to be there wherever and whenever it emerged. Charlie Miller wasn't taping yet in 1982, but he was listening hard, helping to build that ecosystem as a tape trader, and just importantly, as a tape listener.
8: I did 10 out of 13 on, on the spring tour in 82, plus I also did the two Solo Garcias at the Capitol in Passaic, so I saw 12. I got into touring after doing that. Yep, I would bring my uh, home stereo, literally, not just a cassette deck. My home stereo, some speakers, and we'd set up, set them up in the room, and I would have, I would find somebody who taped the shows, and I would give him my cassette deck and ask them, "I'm taking, make me copies." And you know, it was a, it was a shitty deck. It was like an eighty nine dollar deck that it's good for, good for playing on or whatever. You know, it was, and uh, it, so if it ever got stolen, I wouldn't care, but it never got stolen.
1: Taper Jim Wise
9: listening to the show. After the show is a really cool thing. That was pretty common if I was on tour and we were in a hotel that night or whatever. With headphones, it just was was really cool because it was nice to be able to
1: evaluate what you were doing, how the
9: sound was.
1: A subtle shaking of the Grateful Dead stage setup in early 1982 had an unexpected consequence. Steve Silberman and David Shanks' Skeleton Key, a dictionary for deadheads, refers to it as the switch. To make better use of the stage monitors, Jerry Garcia and Phil Lesh switched sides of the stage, Garcia moving to the right, Lesh to the left. It placed Garcia directly next to keyboardist Brent Midland. Formerly of the AOR Act Silver, and then the Bob Weir Band, Midland had replaced Keith and Donna Godshow in 1979, playing keyboards and singing. His instrumental arsenal returned the Hammond B3 to the band's sound, and his improvisational voice, not quite as aggressive as Keith Godshow, changed the makeup of the band's musical conversations. The switch changed the dynamic even more.
8: That was when I really noticed the interaction between Brent and Jerry growing was on spring 82.
1: Along with a new musical bromance, Brent Midland also got a new keyboard in early 1982, a Yamaha CP-80 electric piano, similar to the CP-70 that Keith Godshow played between 1977 and his departure in 1979. It ended a distinct era, From 1979 to 1981, where Brent's sound was often defined by the chiming of his dino roads, like this Shakedown Street, recorded October 25th, 1979 in New Haven, now Road Trips Volume 1, Number 1.
6: Nothing shaking on Shakedown Street. Used to be the heart of town. Tell me this
8: town ain't got no
5: heart.
8: Just gotta poke around. I'm I'm a big fan of the Brent stuff, and I'm a big fan of his sound in like 83 and 84. I hated that piano. When I got on spring tour in 82 and he had that piano sound, I hated that. It just, I just thought it had a really lifeless, thin sound,
1: like a fake shitty piano. It's not the best piano sound, but maybe fairly cutting edge for 1982. And I do like having a more traditional piano texture back in the mix especially for moments like this.
8: Philly, during Shakedown, when Brent and Jerry were kind of like doing a riff and Jerry, you know, the call and response thing and Jerry would do something, look over and give him a nod and then Brent would do something and go back to Jerry. And it was, it was pretty cool watching that.
1: of the Grateful Dead ecosystem was a collaborative community project, the seeds of which had been planted a decade ago. Deadheads were rampant and they were starting to make things besides just tapes. Eric Schwartz was on the road that summer.
10: Summer 82, we were gone. We printed up 10,000 tape labels, got in the Volkswagen, said goodbye to the parents, high schools, high school juniors, and did the whole summer. You know, we started with Cross country to the Rainbow Gathering in Council, Idaho, where Wavy Gravy woke us up in our tent looking for a hundred people to carry a hundred watermelons on the Fourth of July of gathering in Idaho, and that's exactly how I remember him. You know, he was thin, he was tough, he had his uh, total patched, um, you know, overalls on, clown makeup. I met the 100 people that were touring. I became friends with them all. It was just the people that I that we saw every show and, and started putting their names in my tour book and their addresses and their phone numbers. There was a really tight core, and there were probably several tight cores of people. You know, mm-hmm. Ours wasn't the only tight core people, but there was like you know 60, 80, 100 really tight people that I knew there was like a, like a Syosset Long Island faction There was, you know, a Boston faction, there were people from the Midwest, and we all kind of converged. We were still under the radar. There really wasn't any national Grateful Dead terror by the media impending doom coming to your town. We kind of were able to hit and run without too much drama.
1: One of the heads they hooked up with was an optician who went by the name Chris Goodspace. He'd been seeing the dead since 76.
11: And it wasn't until summer of 82 that I decided to head to the West Coast. I bought an old 69 Dodge van and fixed it up out of a junkyard and filled it up with some folks, and we started heading west and did the whole summer that tour and had a good time.
10: Chris was just an older dude that had a van, had his tour shit together, and we, we just latched onto him. and. We'd all gather after a show and look at a roadmap and go, all right, we've got 800 miles to go. Let's pick a campsite. We'll all meet there. And 90% of the times we all met
11: there. My first sticker was like 79 or so. For the summer of 82, I did Happiness is Dancing with the Dead. And I didn't have enough room on the sticker. So I made the "with the" one word, W-I-T-H-E. And so that got a lot of attention. And then I was also, my t-shirts were, I had This Bud's For You, uh, Support Your Local Grower, which was one I sold on High Times Magazine. But also I did the, and I stole it from Relics Magazine because on their poster where they do all the song posters, they had the Lovelight guy. And they had taken him off and I wanted to see him back out in the world. So I did lovely t-shirts.
10: Everybody was biting each other's work because that, there was nothing digital. It was all just, you know, there's a poster. We'll, we'll take a little piece of that and turn it into a t-shirt.
1: Looked at another way, it was folk art, casually appropriating iconography from dead albums, underground comics, and from each other without a look back. It was not only a maker culture, but a maker counterculture, building its own network to provide an alternative to what was available elsewhere. John Leopold and his twin brother, David, hit the road that summer, too. For reasons
2: that my parents still can't explain, they let us drive with these guys we barely knew to go to Red Rocks. We had this a complete on-the-road experience. We turned on to Kerouac and The Grateful Dead and Kesey and all that stuff. And we went to that show, and not only is it Red Rocks and all that stuff, but the they're celebrating the 25th anniversary of uh, On the Road at an at Um And so... That set break, there were, there was Ginsburg and Burroughs and Kesey and Mountain Girl. It was like all these people that we had been reading about were now live. So we were pretty hooked at that point. The distance between that period of the 60s and what we were experiencing didn't seem that far apart. Those folks were still around. At a show where Kesey might show up, he would have the thunder machine out in the parking lot. And people would be gathered around or Wavy would show up with the nobody for president bus. Eric
1: Schwartz.
10: I don't think we knew what Robert Hunter looked like till I went and saw a show. And we were able to see him and the Garcia Band and Bobby in the Midnight. So when we weren't doing that and Max Creek, you know, I mean, being on the East Coast, it was just like five nights a week of Max Creek. And then every Grateful Dead show you could see in between. But, yeah, it was all just trying to absorb and learn as much as you can. For us, it
2: seemed like a very vibrant scene. We look at it now as this period where Garcia was was going into some spiraling with his drug habit, but for us, they were popping out stuff all the time. Garcia was releasing solo records and Weir
1: had the midnights. So there was a there was a whole scene of people. In our last episode, we heard a bit about Grateful Dead Tour in the early 80s from photographer Jay Blakesburg and others. But as the eighties progressed, a number of other small cultural changes occurred that acted in some ways as important counterbalances to MTV. The first was Xerox machines. To talk about the radical power of photocopying and how it pertained to the unfolding psychedelic underground, please welcome from the Harvard School of World Religions, J. Christian Greer.
12: One of the byproducts of this technological revolution was an explosion of DIY publication. It's with the rise of Xerox copying, not only at Kinko's, but within the corporate world. You have a switch from Mimeo and Ditto, this really onerous process. You have a transition to Xerography.
1: The big turning point would come with the introduction of the all-night copy center in 1985.
12: and It's no exaggeration. Towards the end of the 80s, 88, 89, 90, you had no less than 100,000 to 200,000 new fanzines circulating every year. I mean, that's huge. That's just a massive amount of print.
1: But 1982 is an inflection point in the fanzine world. In the spring, Mike Gunderloy launched Fact Sheet 5, a zine that simply listed other zines, creating essentially a central directory for the emerging network of undergrounds. And though it wasn't listed in Fact Sheet 5, it was in 1982 that Grateful Dead tour got its own zine. Relics had, of course, launched as a proper magazine for dead tapers in Brooklyn in 1974, following the earlier North Carolina publication Dead in Words that had been aimed at bootleg LP collectors. But in August 1982, Michael Linna founded Michael, spelled with a K, a one-sheet publication that he copied and distributed at shows. Eric Schwartz met him on tour.
10: From what I remember, he was funding his tour by either refereeing or winning bridge tournaments, like organizing and getting people to pay for registration fees to play bridge professionally or semi-professionally. He reminds me of the guy from Doonesbury and Hunter S. Thompson, totally nondescript. I mean, complete with the visor, the clamping on the, I don't know if he smoked or not, but that's just how I picture him.
1: Over the next few years, Michael Lina's small zine Michael was the only publication in the parking lot, keeping heads up to date with set lists, classified ads, tidbits about cover songs, and other information. Sadly, Michael Lina died of cancer only a few years later, but his work is invaluable. Thank you, Michael. By the end of 1982, he'd published nearly 10 issues. We've posted a link to scans of Eric Schwartz's nearly complete collection at dead.net slash deadcast. If you have issues six, eight, nine, or 10 from 1982 and would like to help, please get in touch with us at stories.dead.net. In the same way that MTV would create a new center of gravity for the music industry, the Zine Network would create a new core for many thousands of parallel and entwined undergrounds, an interconnected subterranean exchange by which readers could find like-minded heads.
12: The story of fanzine culture. Within that story, the main characters, the main groups are psychedelic
1: groups. These groups would exist at the far periphery of the Grateful Dead scene and provide another kind of counterbalance to MTV. And in a way, a counterbalance to the dead themselves, who represented a different kind of mainstream by 1982. Christian's forthcoming book from Oxford University Press sounds like extremely my scene, and perhaps yours. Angel-Headed Hipsters, Psychedelic Militancy in 1980s North America. We've posted links to Christian's website, as well as to his new psychedelic travelogue memoir, Kumano Kodo, Pilgrimage to Power Spots, at dead.net slash deadcast.
12: Particularly Church of the Subgenius plays a very important
1: role, as do the Scordians. Founded in Texas in 1980, the Church of the Subgenius was a parody of a religion. Or was it? They rallied around the grinning, pipe-smoking piece of clip art they named J.R. Bob Dobbs.
12: And I think that in many ways, the Church was founded on an attempt to really rejuvenate some of the playful, far out, mind expanded, creative creativity that was associated with the pranksters and, and, the psych, and psychedelic culture in general, particularly moving through the Discordian movement, which really, I think, asserted itself in the mid 70s with Robert Anton Wilson and Robert Shea's Illuminatus trilogy. But if you know about Discordianism, uh, it, what is it? Discordians stick apart, you know, that they're, they're, they're militantly decentralized. And so I think what you saw with the Churches of Genius is an attempt to channel that energy into a collective project that was, at the very fundamental basis, fun. <laughs> at the very fundamental, a great time. What the hell do you think you're doing? Dragging your butt through
0: the day, selling body and soul to a bunch of bland normals, acting stupid
13: so they'll think you're one of them?
1: The Church of the Subgenius had their own zine, of course, The Stark Fist of Removal. By 1982, its subscriber list wasn't very big. One of those subscribers, though, was Ken Kesey, who would be blurbed on the back of the book of the subgenius a few years later. And one of its readers, at least, was Jerry Garcia, who is seen holding a copy of the very third issue of The Stark Fist of Removal in a photo from the holidays that year in Oregon with the Keseys.
12: It's easy to forget that this grinning guy, who seems to be sort of cheesy, was really the mask or the the face of what I consider to be a strain of militant uh, psychedelic culture. Because if you start looking at subgenius texts, they were very clear about a repudiation of normal culture, a hatred of work, and the insistence that people cultivate their own, what they called slack which of course you can't define Slack, everyone has their own Slack.
0: It's J.R. Bob Dobbs, the living Slack master and his church of the subgenius. Bob brings a new destiny for the abnormal. For Bob comes to justify our sins, to unmask the conspiracy, and to get us back the slack they stole away. It's us versus them. Are you going to fry in hell on earth alongside the pink boys? Or will you pull the wool over your own eyes and accept Bob into your mind?
9: Repent.
5: Quit your job.
12: And they had their own acid. I dated the earliest form of. Uh, Dobbs Blatter acid to like 1981, because I do have evidence that it was circulated at the first major subgenius convention that took place in Dallas in 1981.
1: A few years after they had their own acid, they had their own mass market paperback with blurbs from Ken Kesey, R. Crum, Robert Anton Wilson, and other subterranean heavies.
12: Within the broad or, or wider world of fanzines, you have a sort of language developing. And that language is visual. So you have the Dobbs head. This is, in many ways, the symbol for acid culture in the 80s. However, there is one symbol that's even bigger, and that's the steely. That's the grateful head.
1: By the early 1980s, the Grateful Dead had become the mainstream of the psychedelic underground, a big tent for numerous other cliques of weirdos. There wasn't a lot of overlap between dead freaks and sub but there was some. A decade later, a Dobbshead would appear on backstage passes for the Jerry Garcia band. Another psychedelic affinity group around the dead in those days was the First Church of Fun out of Western Massachusetts, who built their own acid tests around the recording of the August 1972 Sunshine Daydream benefit that we spoke about a few episodes back. Please ring your silent bells, and welcome back to the Deadcast, Dupree's Diamond News founder, Johnny Dwork.
14: I had a connection with uh, the Church of the Subgenius because I had been uh, ordained by Wavy Gravy as the rabbi of the First Church of Fun. And so the Church of the Subgenius and the First Church of Fun were sort of like sister cults. And so we had flirted with each other from the early 1980s onward. And it was very obvious that we were very different from one another, but we were mutually compatible. By then,
1: Johnny had begun his own entry into the zine
14: world. I'd started the uh, Hampshire College Grateful Dead Historical Society, and we started to produce Deadbeat magazine, which was more of a zine than a magazine. But it was one of those earliest Grateful Dead newsletters that was focused on uh, you know, trying to figure out like what Grateful Dead shows are actually available in what quality tape, soundboard or audience, and how do you actually connect with tapers before the internet? There was this scene in New York of tapers, this scene of the deservedly legendary tapers like Jerry Moore, who was the actual uh, co-founder of Relics magazine, who was one of the great tapers. Tapers And Barry Glassberg, one of the great tapers.
1: In addition to the ecosystem of tapes themselves, which created a linear history for deadheads, Deadbeat also began to cultivate something else important, community memory.
14: I was also going down to New York to connect with these tapers and to not just trade tapes with them, but talk history with them and try to actually go, you know, put together the definitive list of What are all of the Grateful Dead shows and what are all of the tapes and what quality are they all? And so the only way before the Internet that you really could get this information um, was by hanging out with these people. And of course, because we were digitally because we were analog recording back then, it took you as long to make a tape as it took to to run the tape at, at play speed. So you had all this time to hang out with these people and talk shop.
1: If the deadhead scene of the 70s became sentient with relics, zines like Michael and Deadbeat brought the self-awareness to the next level And an era when relics itself turned its attention to more mainstream music. A few years later, Deadbase and other publications would put it into book form. The other huge counterbalance to MTV in the early 1980s was the true ascendance of the cassette deck, In the summer of 1980, the Walkman arrived on American shores from Japan and was an instant success, turning cassettes into a global music format. Without knowing the numbers, it resulted in an explosion of Grateful Dead tape trading over the course of the early 80s. During this era, the Dead themselves tried to figure out how to harness the power of the cassette and the Deadheads. We are so honored to welcome back, from Ice Nine Publishing, Alan Trist.
15: The majority of the income for the band came from touring. Unlike many bands of the time, 75% of their income was from records and 25% from touring was the other way around with the Grateful Dead, always. The Deadhead audience was growing right through the 80s. Merchandising was another item on the agenda too, another income source. The demand for these sorts of things in the early 80s was really growing because the Deadhead audience was growing right through the 80s.
1: In 1982, the band again tapped into their vaunted mailing list and Grateful Ed Productions sent out their first official mail-order merchandise catalogue with help from Bill Graham's Winterland Productions.
15: There were a lot of restrictions that particularly um, Hunter and and the publishing side wanted to put on merchandising, like, don't use the lyrics. We couldn't do much about song titles, uh, hence all those little bears came out with song titles. But definitely... There were issues about what what to sell and what not to sell. As always, uh, the dead were keeping an an eye to uh, merchandising decency, could I say? (laughs) Yeah, as opposed to racking up the sales.
1: The dead were more than aware of the incipient taping scene. There had been talk of putting out archival releases as far back as the early 70s, with various internal discussions of tape clubs and even a subsidiary record label called Ground Records. But in 1982, that conversation began again. In the Grateful Dead Business Archives is a fairly extraordinary memo dated August 13, 1982, prepared by Alan Trist of Ice Nine Publishing, titled Concert Tape Marketing. It summarizes a conversation between Alan, Phil Lesh, Bill Kreutzmann, and others about the feasibility of selling the dead's own live
15: tapes. So it was a natural discussion to talk about the, the tapes as an income source.
1: It's a radically forward-thinking document. We had Alan read many of the salient points.
15: Concert tapes could be sold by direct mail through the Deadheads list. Special selections could also be offered. For instance, drum breaks, Bugs Look Dada, Phil's Choice, Egypt, etc., selected from the vault. Such a method of marketing Grateful Dead music is most natural to... The Grateful Dead's creative process. The occurrences of new songs or the resurrection of old songs, new arrangements, etc., popping up from time to time in concerts is less forced than periodic compression of new material into an album. Economically, selling Grateful Dead recorded music this way could entirely supplant record company albums and make more money although I might say that last point is uncertain.
1: It's an intensely fascinating proposal. The proposal goes on to present some math. They estimate 75 shows per year, 40 of which might be approved for a lease, estimating approximately 1,000 buyers per show with a total profit of perhaps $200,000 a year, a little over $600,000 a year in today's terms. The proposal also raised some counter-arguments.
15: Devil's advocate... Although we might reach the same market as regular records do, we would forfeit the chance to reach new markets through the power of record companies and the media. Devil's Advocate. Not everyone, not even all deadheads, have tape machines. Some people prefer to buy albums. Devil's Advocate again. Intentional studio recording projects Particularly of new material, can express a coherent concept or aesthetic more fully than a concert or a concert tape. And I have an afternote. As the concert tape project developed, however, set and concert design might begin to develop such coherence. That's an interesting possibility that we never explored. The music industry would not be threatened by the novelty of this marketing technique, for the G.D. is the only band where every concert is more or less unique.
1: The Dead had nurtured a delicate ecosystem, as Alan reflects now.
15: I felt that looking at all the sides of this issue was going to be uh, important because the innovation of tape trading, and as long as nobody past any money back and forth, was a real innovation in the music business. The dead were outliers in respect to it, probably still are to this day, I don't know about that, but it was that kind of energy to overturn that and turn it back into a commercial operation would have been a change from the direction that had been, we had been going. So I wanted to show both sides of that coin, which had been in discussion in the office for some time, I think the fact that it was addressed, that memo, to Billy and Phil is interesting, because they—I think they are the two who who were were concerned about—most about the way the money was going to flow, and they wanted to keep an eye on the potentials as well. The band valued the interest that the tape trading gave to the deadheads. You get another dimension to the community aspect of the Grateful Dead subculture, you might say. i since learned that tape trading wasn't just something that happened by mail. That local communities would form in different parts of the country around the need to find a venue to uh, trade tapes, so they would meet somewhere. They'd meet at at somebody's house or even a larger venue and they'd set up shop and trade tapes with each other. I think that's a very significant part that would have been lost if the tapes had gone commercial, because the extension of, of community in every way, whether it's the parking lot or trading tapes or going on the road together, this was all part of the larger Grateful Dead experience. Generating an energy exchange, which is just what you want. You want that one to have an evenness to it. The Nobel economist Paul Krugman, he famously said in some New York Times post of his that everything he learned about business, he learned from the grateful dead and wrote a column to that effect. And it's a very challenging thought, but I think it just goes to the thing that if you give your product away freely, in the sense that we just talked about in terms of community and sharing technical and other kinds of knowledge you create a a loyalty and there's other words one could use probably that comes back in that they everyone will then buy the official releases as well as having it on tape
1: the dead weren't selling their own tapes by fall 1982 but they absolutely continued their commitment to chasing the cutting edge of sound and lights The newest major contributor was Meyer Sound, run by John and Helen Meyer. In the same years the dead were making their first forays into live sound, John Meyer was doing the same with the Steve Miller Band. By 1969, he'd invented a new speaker system in his living room. And from here, we'll let the Meyers pick up the story. We're so pleased to welcome from Meyer Sound, John and Helen Meyer, who brought a brochure to the nearby Whole Earth Truck Store, founded by Trips Festival organizer Stuart Brand. The store was
16: around the corner, yeah. and we put a brochure in the store.
17: We gave a demo for Stuart Brand outside, and he put it in his catalog and said, well, if you want something to take your head off, here it is. So we built the eight-foot horns, and we and
16: Pepperland started to happen. We were involved in Pepperland in 1969, 1970. So Pepperland was a ballroom in Santa Rafael, and when they came to us, they said they wanted to make it the most exciting ballroom rock venue possible. And we got excited because they were excited about doing a quadraphonic now, sound system quadraphonic.
1: Located in San Rafael, Pepperland was just a few blocks from where the dead would soon take over a warehouse space on Front Street.
17: They liked yeah. the horns that fit into their scheme of roundness. And of course, it made the news. And we had these big eight foot horns. And they were so powerful. When you build horns that big, they're very, very efficient. They would bounce around the floor as we played music. And so people would climb inside them. I mean, there were people sleeping and climbing on top and things like
1: that. John would go on to work for McCune Sound and consult with Owsley Stanley while the dead created the Wall of Sound in the mid-70s, helping to refine the idea with some very pertinent suggestions, which we'll save for another episode. John and Helen moved to Switzerland for a time in the middle of the decade, where John did research at the Institute for Advanced Musical Studies.
16: After Switzerland, we decided to start Meyer Sound. So that was in 1979. And then you started working with the dead really right around the early 80s. The way I think you got more connected with the dead in the early, after we started Meyer Sound, was your connection with Bear. Yeah. Because Bear came to an AES meeting. He heard what you were doing. And he said, that's what the dead needs. And it was really Bear. Well, that's right. together. Mean, yeah. yeah we the, took that yeah.
17: monitor, which we built. It was a very high speed, really kind of what I always wanted to make. Studio monitor, and uh, we took it to the Starship because Bear was doing both the Starship and we did it for cantner and played. And what was nice about it is that we could mix in drums and things like that, and they could hear, and they really liked it, the sound of this is a stage monitor. And so we started, that's the first product we started to build as a stage monitor for the Grateful Dead, the Ultra Monitor. And the Dead, they started using more and more of these Ultra Monitors. So we started, and then we built
1: a more powerful. MSL3, right, mm-hmm. system. In the years following the wall of sound, the dead had used a patchwork of systems, most lately renting from the Clare brothers. In 1981, Dan Healy commissioned a small speaker setup for Meyer Sound.
17: We built them four or eight or uh, small enough that they could do a show like a Berkeley Community Theater, but without telling me, they took it up to the Greek Theater and the on one side, they had Claire do the thing, and then the other side was these eight speakers we built them. We weren't, I wasn't invited. We didn't even know that they were doing it. It was a shootout. And
1: we, apparently, we won. Because we won. <laughs> Pretty soon, Meyerstown was supplying the PA for all of the Dead's West Coast shows and became a participant in Grateful Dead board meetings as they started to develop their newest system that would make its debut in the late summer of 1982, leading up to the shows at Madison Square Garden. The next board
17: meeting, yeah. I saw that they were really getting annoyed with the tapers. They really had a board meeting about getting rid of the people taping the shows. And I said, can I, you, since you invited me, can I put in my pitch? And they go, what is your pitch? And I said, well, you know, we're in the very beginning of trying to create high fidelity sound for the Grateful Dead and the audience. We're doing everything in our power to make it like a really great experience, like a record experience. And when they're recording like this, it really pushes the envelope and the fact we all have an archive of our story. We can't just say we're doing it. they are going to actually have data. And I like that because it'll really keep us on track. We're human after all.
1: and, And if we have someone watching us. It would be a few years yet before the dead would officially legalize taping. But big ups to John Meyer for standing up for the tapers. Charlie Miller wasn't taping yet in fall 82, but he was definitely trading tapes and listening hard.
8: That was the first tour with their new PA, the ultrasound PA with Myers Sound. And I just could not believe how unreal it sounded. It was the most amazing, clear, warm, analog sound. And I just loved it. It used to be if you wanted it to sound good, you had to be by healing. You had to be at the soundboard because everything was hard panned. You know, one drummer was out of one channel. The other drummer's out of another channel. Brent was all the way on the right side. Bobby's on the left side. Jerry was in the middle and Phil was in the middle. And the vocals were in the middle. But other than that, so if you were on the, in the Phil zone, you couldn't really hear the keys. It was loud and clear with the JBLs. As you see the get evolved, you'll see more and
17: more the stage stuff got smaller and smaller and smaller over time. And we, we enhanced it more with speakers. But that was a lot of my influence in pushing because Bear was really... And he was kind of forced to agree with me, even though he didn't like the idea, because you can't blast everybody. You can't do an arena or a stadium and have all the sound come through the performers. It was all kind of aimed at getting the... the it's coming from stereo, so everything was kind of concentrated at the mix position. I, I said, I think it really, really got... And Bear was also interested in... And the movie people also were... There's there's stereo, and then there's multi-channel mono. Which is what the movie people were doing. In other words, they'd have a center speaker for voice and they'd have a left speaker for music. The right speaker, it's called multi-channel mono. It was not stereo. They they didn't they didn't like stereo movie people and kind of developed it early on uh, as a multi-channel mono thing. And I like that better. I say to Barry, we're already started with this. If you think about it, we've got Phil Lesh over here, and we've got Jerry, or whoever's coming over here, it's already kind of multi-channel mono, and we, we don't have the stereo problem, but we just make everything, and then we can add fill to that, which is my skill, to kind of filling in, say, at a distance to try and enhance that experience, but keeping that as our image, you know, that multi-channel image, and then having, so wherever you, fill that should always be coming from, stage
8: left or right, depending on which way you, if you're the actor or the audience it was supposed to sound good anywhere in the room not just by healy once i think switched to meyer's sound the low end on the recordings became smoother the high end was just crisper it had a fuller warmer sound to it we got constant feedback
16: mostly from don pearson yeah and howard Danzik, because they were out there Dan Healy a little bit, but mostly it was from Don and Howard, I'd yeah, say, right? Yeah. Were, Don, was, <laughs> Don had a lot of ideas, and he would talk a lot about how he could imagine things being better and better, and you collaborated on a lot of that, and, and he's always trying to make things better. John is.
1: The pairing of Meyer Sound with The Grateful Dead was one of the most perfect and seemingly frictionless in the band's history, a relationship which continued through the end of The Grateful Dead proper in 1995 and on into the band's spin-offs. At the same time, Meyer Sound became an industry standard, heard in venues across the world. We'll have more of our conversation with Helen and John Meyer next episode. It wasn't just the sound that the Dead were bent on improving. In our last season, about Europe 72, we spoke with Candace Brightman and Ben Holler about the Dead's then-new light rig, a pair of light trees that fit into the back of the recording truck. By a decade later, it had evolved. In 1982... Dan English joined Candice Brightman on the road. Please welcome to the Deadcast, Dan English.
3: I worked for a pretty well-known lighting company at the time. This is a company called Morpheus Lights, and they're still around. But they were they were big into touring, and I'd been on the road for a couple of years with them doing all kinds of bands, Santana, Neil Diamond, and John Denver, people like that. So I was, I was sort of on the road, and then Candace was looking around for a new lighting company. She was from the Bay Area, and so is Morpheus. We were in San Jose. She just randomly called in, and the boss sent me to go check it out. The first show was uh, the Greek Theater, I think in 82. I went up, and I met Candace and she gave me her vision of what she wanted, which was intriguing because it was completely different than the kinds of things that we had been doing at the time. Candice was sort of very theatrical in her approach, and she used an interesting combination of very deep colors from very high angles and things. The gold standard was queen, straight ahead, red, blue, amber, green, big banks of lights. And Candice wasn't about that at all. Hers was interesting angles, different, completely different looks, very theatrical presentation. It wasn't like a disco beat or anything like that. It was sort of timed intricately with the music.
1: And this was before moving lines. Candace's setup had grown a bit since the Europe 72 days of Light Trees, but mostly they'd just gotten more.
3: They had talked about having Tate Towers out there before. They were like very straightforward parkan rigs. And, you know, I think she just couldn't get what she wanted from them as far as look, I want this interesting design, the way the trusses are, I want this kind of layout, and I want someone to pay attention to me when I say what I want. And Morpheus, we were very keen on that, doing those kinds of things. And we had our own welding shop. We made custom brackets to fly the trusses at custom angles. And it all kind of came together rather serendipitously, I would say. We did the Greek theater. We went on to do some more local shows. And then the first Back East tour I did was, I think, it was a run that included like West Palm Beach and Lakeland, Florida, and then we went up north.
1: That's the fall 1982 tour that led up to the garden shows. In addition to the new sound system and the new lights, the tour also had new songs. Archivist David Lemieux.
7: They debuted uh, West LA, Keep Your Day Job. And then a couple weeks later, they add Throwing Stones, and Touch of Grey, these are two songs that would be huge parts of the 1980s Grateful Dead. The 82s, Dupree's came back, Crazy Fingers came back. These are songs that hadn't been played in a number of years. Crazy Fingers, 76, came back in 82 in July, and then Dupree's hadn't played it since 78, came back. They're kind of reaching back a little bit and pulling out some songs that I think were very well-received because those are deep cuts. You know, Crazy Fingers is... You know, pretty deep. One way to hear The Dead's new songs was to be there in person.
1: Or you could track it down on tape from somebody like Jim Wise, then acquire a tape label from somebody like Eric Schwartz, who needed a record company anyway. The Dead sure didn't need a label
14: to sell at Madison Square Garden. Johnny Dwork. And everybody knew. Everybody knew that The Grateful Dead played better in New York because there was something about the high-energy of the Grateful Dead scene in New York that inspired the Grateful Dead to be on their game. You'd go down I-95, and it took uh, two and a half, three hours to drive. And you'd go down, and you'd see your family, and you'd see your friends, and you'd set up uh, during the day tape trading. And then at night, you'd see the Grateful Dead at Madison Square Garden. Uh, It was a thing. Outside the garden, there wasn't a scene, but you might have run into
1: Michael Linna, who would have given you a copy of issue number four of his one-sheet, one-sided zine featuring a set list from the US Festival, as well as the publication's first letters column? Charlie Miller was on tour, but stayed at home in Forest Hills when the Dead were in town.
8: First night, we were at the train station and we were getting ready to board the train to the Garden. And I said, my friend called Half Step Open, or I called a Shakedown Street. And what was really cool is that after the lights went down, the first sound that came out of the PA was built when he's tuning. It was the opening quarter of Shakedown, and we all knew it was coming, and it was just so awesome.
1: We spoke a bunch with photographer Bob Minkin last time. He was there for the Garden 82 shows as well.
7: It was always a lot of energy, especially when they would open with Shakedown Street.
1: Nothing shaking old Shakedown Street.
6: Used to be the heart of town. i Tell me this town ain't got no heart. Just got to poke around.
7: really the perfect opener to be playing at the garden because of the line, tell me this town ain't got no heart. That line alone brought thunder to the place because, you know, they could be playing in other cities. Tell me this town ain't got no heart. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's nice. But when they play, say that line in New York, it really has a lot of re- resonance.
1: One of the wonders of the world, a shakedown street opener at Madison Square Garden, and an occurrence that I thought had happened much more frequently, only four times in the 15 years that the dead played the garden. This one in 82, again in 88, 91, and 94. Archivist David Lemieux.
7: The tapes sound incredible too, I gotta say. There's a cleanliness to the tapes, and there's a cleanliness to the performances that I've always really loved. They're not exceptionally jammed-out shows, Songs aren't particularly jammed out. It's a it's a much more concise, Grateful Dead. And I say concise in a very good way. So they're not stretching things out to, you know, a, a song that might have at other times stretched out to 12 or 14 minutes. They're maybe keeping them at eight or nine. I was always
14: on Phil's side, several seats up off of the floor. For me, that was the sweet spot. And the reason that that was the sweet spot was because I had given my right-ear hearing to Hot Tuna at their legendary all-night-long late shows at the Academy of Music, which then became the Palladium. Uh, Hot Tuna would play literally the late show from 1 a.m. till 6 a.m. My sweet spot was closer to the band than the soundboard and a couple of seats up from the floor so i could sit and see the band play but also get the best mix for the hearing that i had is this uh, double, uh, it's like, it's two memories that that, uh, compete against one another. And one is my memory at the time of being greatly concerned about seeing the shift in Jerry Garcia's health. When you go back now and you listen to the music from that period of time, It's like, wow, actually, two things are true about that music. And one is, it was disappointing to see the shift from the sort of psychedelic to the cocaine vibe. But, oh my God, that music actually rocks compared to the music that the Grateful Dead were playing, for example, in the 1990s. So perspective is everything.
1: There was a whole world of deadheads at Madison Square Garden, from urban professionals to tour rats. People making bumper stickers and t-shirts and newsletters. People taking photographs. People twirling. People totally puddled. People at their first rock show. People at their first rock show since the 60s. People at their first rock show since the night before. And of course, tapers. Jim Wise.
9: Those were the type of people that I would be mingling my way through as I was getting into the show. I mean, there was a whole world of people out there doing their thing. And I was just doing mine. I had much better tickets than I did in 81. I had good floor tickets, so I must have been, uh, because I just had better tickets,
1: so the
9: sound was better.
1: For the 81 garden shows, Jim had stationed himself safely at the soundboard next to Dan Healy. Dan English of the Light Crew remembered this posse.
3: He really liked the ones that were real serious, and he appreciated what they were doing, and they'd come
1: talk to him about particular tape deck. Recording in the thick of the venue floor was a different game for Jim Wise.
9: Being a taper and recording the show is, is a completely different experience than going to the show and just being a fan and trying to enjoy the show. I was always engrossed in taping. I'd probably be obsessing over my tape deck, watching the levels, looking around. If I was in an area where I was trying to be discreet, keeping the mic's head level or whatever. You were always looking over your shoulder. You were always looking around, trying to head off security if if they happened to come around. Or, you know, let's say someone wanted, uh, the usher was trying to find someone a seat and they, they happened to be right next to you and you got all your gear out. You don't necessarily want that to happen. So you always had to be aware of what was going on around you. There was always someone who was just really fucked up or whatever and would come stumbling through and use the mic stand for support as they're walking through your gear. That's when you got to be like, hey, be cool, and so on and so forth. But once you point out what you're doing to someone as they're coming through, then yes, they're very respectful. I would be able to enjoy the show afterwards forever. So if I went through the work of making the recording, it just seems that was the, the other than, you know, sacrificing the enjoyment of actually being at the show, it was worth it.
1: And thank you for that, Jim. There had been a bit of turnover in the dead set list since their last time through. The old Oxum favorite, Dupree's Diamond Blues, had returned a month earlier and was received warmly at the Garden. When I was just a
6: little young boy Papa said, son, you never get far I'll tell you the
1: Brent Midland's newest song was no longer a new song by Fall 82, exactly. Midland would title it Good Time Blues, but the name Never Trust Woman stuck. It debuted a few months after the previous garden shows, a year to the day before the band brought back Dupree's Diamond Blues.
6: I'm gonna see some good time Sometimes to make up for when I'm not feeling well
1: Never Trust a Woman would never make it to a Dead album, though the song went in and out of the sets through 1990. It was during this 1982-1983 period that Midland began to work on his never-completed solo album. We've posted a link to a deep history of that project by Dean Budnick at dead.net slash deadcast. Good Time Blues doesn't seem to have been in their consideration, perhaps because it had already found a bit of a home in the Dead repertoire. At the Garden, the band had some new, new songs. Bob Minkin.
7: Grateful Dead, MSG 92082. And my note I wrote next to it says three new songs.
1: The first two of those songs came paired together at the end of the first set.
6: Picture a bright blue ball just spinning, spinning free Dizzy with eternity
7: Covered with a painted sky. David Lemieux. The way they incorporated them, especially something like Throwing Stones, where they didn't quite know where it would live. I mean, it was one of those moments in time where such an important song in the Dead's repertoire for the next 13 years didn't have a home yet. And I love that. I think that's fantastic.
1: Throwing Stones, written by Bob Weir with lyricist John Perry Barlow, had debuted three days earlier in Portland, Maine. And the version at the first night of the garden was only the third ever. Nearly two years into the Reagan administration, it was The Grateful Dead's most political song, at least in the eyes of its lyricist. Our roving time traveler, David Gans, interviewed Barlow about it in January 1986, part of David's wonderful book, Conversations with the Dead.
0: We're not real political, but uh, every once in a while, I'll get on a crank. I decided that I was going to ask The Grateful Dead to do a political song, which I'd never done before. and never had any desire to do. Uh, I mean, since what the Grateful Dead does is work on consciousness, which is the best way to approach politics anyway. You change, change consciousness and politics will take care of itself. But it seemed like there was a pressing need for everybody to have an anthem all of a sudden, and there still is. Uh, I mean, we have to be thinking about these things. And I, f- I felt like we had to say something very direct and strong, but it took a while before we found something that had the right tone.
10: In the politicians, throwing scones, singing ashes, ashes off all down. Ashes, ashes off all down.
1: It was a new thing in the Grateful Bed catalog, however you sliced it. It even had a little jam where Garcia got to Garcia. Five years later, Throwing Stones would follow Touch of Grey onto MTV as The Dead's second video, though with perhaps a little less success. At the Garden in 82, The Dead were very much still figuring out what
7: to do with it. Would it come out of space? Would it be a song that would go into drums? Is it going to be an end of the first set song leading into Day Job? On this first night at the Garden,
1: it would land in one of Jerry Garcia and Robert Hunter's three new songs. ¶¶ Ha, the notorious keep your day job, Sean O'Donnell. I remember being highly offended by my day job
13: on in real time as it happened.
6: (laughs) Whether you like that job or not, better keep it on ice while you're lining up your long shot. Which is to say, hey, 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 hey. keep your day job. Don't give it away.
13: literally offensive it, because I, I was doing exactly the, the opposite and largely motivated by them, um, you know? So I, I tried to go to college for two seconds right out of high school in fall 81. Uh, that didn't take, even though it was pharmacy school, I, I left. Um, and then uh, it was just, playing guitar, teaching guitar lessons, playing in, in bands. And it was
1: it was all about not keeping the day job as much as possible. If Jerry Garcia was keeping up with the Church of the subgenies stark fist of removal newsletter, it seems like Robert Hunter wasn't. It's an unusually 80s attitude for a dead tune to take. And at a distance, I have to hope that the dropouts in the dead were being a bit ironic. Keep Your Day Job was anti-slack. The song stayed in the band's repertoire for less than four years, one of the few Garcia-Hunter originals never released on an official Dead album, only making it into the properly documented canon in 1996 with the issuing of Dick's Pick 6. This box set nearly doubles the amount of officially released versions of Day Job. In his lyrics collection, A Box of Rain, Hunter noted of Keep Your Day Job, This song was dropped from the Grateful Dead repertoire at the request of fans. Seriously. that bad but it was time for the jams
6: from the other direction she was falling my
1: end. The 1982 model of Scarlet Begonias was about a dozen BPM faster than the classic 1977 takes. You can hear some of that Garcia-Midland bromance unfolding during the semi-unison segment as the band shimmers from Scarlet Begonias into Fire on the Mountain. For Bob Weir's first slot in the second set, he called another tune that was new to the Dead's live repertoire since their last time at the Garden.
6: Let us put men and women together See which one is smarter Some see men, but I say no Women got the men like a puppet show It ain't me
1: Certainly can't argue with the message anyway. Most likely, the song was written in the late 1930s by Norman Spann the Trinidadian Calypso singer known as King Radio.
15: Since the world begun, women was always fooling men. And if you listen to this radio attentively, I'm going to show you all the women smarter than me, or oh, not me. There's some people who say that the men leading the women astray, but I say all lot
1: that the women of today smarter than men. But it was Harry Belafonte that added the familiar chorus and popularized the song in the States in the 50s. In every issue, the dead zine Michael featured one of their cover songs, and Man Smart, Woman Smarter was tackled in issue number one, distributed over Summer Tour. There's a good version on Belafonte at Carnegie Hall, Michael notes, and helpfully cites the catalog number. is... That's
15: right! The woman is... It's That's right! The woman is... It's
6: That's, right. The woman is. It's That's right! That's
15: right!
1: Thanks, as always, to Alex Allen's thorough song histories at whitegum.com. In terms of jam highlights, The First Night at the Garden in 82 also has another piece that had returned to the Dead's repertoire in 1981. ¶¶ The Spanish jam was a motif that stretched back to the primal dead era, played often in early 1968, and only really part of the dead's vocabulary again in 1973 and 1974. As multiple band members noted over the years, it rooted on the great Miles davis gil Evans collaboration Sketches of Spain, released in 1960, and specifically a track called Solia. link to the Grateful Dead guide's excellent piece on the origins and evolution of the Spanish jam at dead.net slash deadcast. The Spanish jam re-emerged in May 1981 and began its second extended life with the band. I love how articulated and deconstructed and weird it got in this era while still retaining its triumphant feel. For the night's encore, The Dead dropped another brand new song. It was the first time most people in Madison Square Garden heard what would become The Dead's only top ten hit. For most other acts, it was a song that would result in them headlining venues like Madison Square Garden. Ircist Robert Hunter, as always, would be fine with any interpretation of Touch of Grey. But years later, he told Rolling Stone's David Brown about the song's origins. I'll give you the blistering truth about it, he said. A friend brought over a hunk of very good cocaine. I stayed up all night, and at dawn I wrote that song. That was the last time I ever used cocaine. Nor had I used it for many years before that. Now I listen to it, and it's that attitude you get when you've been up all night speeding and you're absolutely the dregs. I think I got it down in that song. Hunter had his own version of Touch of Grey that he debuted in the summer of 1980.
18: The shoes on the hand it fits, It's all there really is to it. Whistle through your teeth and spit, cause it's alright. Modern saviors, saints and seers, a motley pack of Paul Reviars. Keep on smiling through the tears, cause it's
6: alright. We will get by, we will get by.
1: And of course, Jerry Garcia earned his co-writing credit, especially with the irresistible chorus, which also had space for a neat guitar figure.
5: I will
1: get
6: by. I will get by. I will get, by. I, will get
1: by. I, will I will survive. Though it would be the song that sent the Dead into the mainstream for real. For now, it was for heads only. The dead scene was still pretty low-key, despite the band selling out multiple nights at Madison Square Garden. Johnny Dwork.
14: And then I should say that when you were done with the dead show at Madison Square Garden, naturally you'd have the munchies. And there were a couple of places in New York that were infamous for post-Madison Square Garden food adventures. And one of them was Woe Hop Noodle Shop on I think it was Mott Street in Chinatown. And they were open late into the night. And it was this greasy walk place that you had to walk downstairs into the basement to. But they stayed open late. And they had really, really, really great chow fun. And sure enough, you'd you'd like... Take a taxi from Madison Square Garden down to Chinatown, and you would be completely surrounded by deadheads. And I remember being amazed because the first time that I went there after a Madison Square Garden show, Mickey Hart is sitting there, and like, it, you know, it was the sort of seating family style where like the seats are not separated. Right, everybody sort of sits together, and so you like might have you like there was just as good a chance that you'd be seated right next to Mickey Hart as not, and nobody made a big deal of it, and everybody was high and everybody was munching out on really good greasy uh, Chinese food, and I think to this day Wohop still is a thing.
1: Sadly, as of the pandemic, Wohop now closes at 10 p.m. on weekends. As Johnny was sleeping off his Wohop bender, another head was slugging it through his day job
14: there's one guy who made that pilgrimage to see the Madison square garden shows who deserves a place in the pantheon of heroic dead head characters. And this guy's name is Richard Petlock by day. Rich Petlock was a geeky nerdy, uh, uh, certified public accountant who crunched numbers for corporations uh in um uh the uh um Springfield Massachusetts area and he had a super mundane job of doing bookkeeping for big corporations and he'd put on his suit and tie uh and his nerdy glasses and he had this sort of nerdy um uh haircut Uh, at the time, and he'd show up for this mundane job day in, day out. But at night, he was like Clark Kent. Off would come the suit and the tie, and he was one of the most devoted deadheads in Grateful Dead history because he would get in his car at 5 o'clock, and he would tear ass down to the city, and he would catch every show at Madison Square Garden. And incredibly when they went off stage after the second set, he'd skip the encore so he could get out of Dodge quick. And he would drive the two and a half hours back to uh, Western Mass where he would get four or five hours of sleep. And then he would go to work at whatever, 7 a.m. again, in the suit and the tie. And then he would head right back to New York City for the show that next night. And he did this for over a decade. I've never known anybody who was more committed to
18: the scene than Rich Petlock. Jeff Pincus. September 21st, 1982. A week before my 17th birthday. i had seen the dead four times prior to the Garden Show. Three times at the Nassau Coliseum, once at Radio City Music Hall. Over the summer, I read The Doors of Perception and the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test and tried LSD for the first time. It was a revelation. It was clear that there was much more going on than I had been told at home or school. I got tickets for the second night of the garden, and my friend Alan and I decided that now that we had lost our psychedelic virginity, the next natural step was to go see the band live, take some acid, and see what that was like. We took the train into the city from Long Island. When we arrived at Penn Station, the streets were filled with heads. Drumming, incense, tie-dye. We dropped a full hit of the Pharaoh blotter before we went in. In fact,
1: if you'd made it over to Times Square in this era, eight blocks to the north of Madison Square Garden, then at the height of its porn era, you might have come across a few adult bookstores that also sold LSD blotter fresh from Dead Tour, a brief turf war erupted. I tell the story in my book, Heads, a biography of psychedelic America. Charlie Miller. The next
8: night, me and my friend were meeting at the garden. We have seats next to each other. He was the guy I did the tour with spring tour in 82. And for 921, 82, I picked up a couple of different blotters on the train and he picked up a couple of different blotters. So between us, we had all different kinds and we just switched. And I literally ate like four or five different kinds of blotter that night and just had the best. Best time ever.
1: Promoter John Sherr gave the band an introduction, and Dan Healy gave John Sherr some special effects.
6: Good evening.
5: I I board board r- I'm keyboard, Rick Midland. I'm drums, drums, Mickey Hart. I'm, I'm drums, Bill Kreutzmann. I'm, I'm bass, the I'm, I'm rhythm guitar, guitar Bob Weir.
6: I'm weekends, our Jerry Garcia, please welcome back to New York the Grateful Dead.
18: The band took the stage, and the crowd roared. They opened the set with playing in the band, right as we began our lysergic liftoff, going for several hours on a psychic musical adventure to places both beautiful and frightening.
1: A playing in the band's show opener was unusual enough. In its early days, the song had mainly been a first set closer, but then its placement moved to the core of the second set jam suites. By 1981, the band was occasionally using it to open second sets and jump right into the deep end. And at the Us Festival, it moved to the very top of the show, a few days before the Garden, in Maryland, they'd opened with playing and wound its theme throughout the show. On the second night at the Garden, as at Landover, it linked into a song not heard on the East Coast for a half dozen years. Recorded for 1975's Blues for Allah, the delicate Crazy Fingers had only survived a few tours into the Dead's 1976 return, disappearing that fall until the band revived it in Ventura earlier in the summer of 82. If it wasn't quite as nuanced as the early versions, it still brought the Dead to a musical space they didn't really access otherwise, maybe somewhere between the Spanish jam and a moody Other One prelude. But it wasn't just the linkage to Crazy Fingers. Weir kept the ball in the air, moving the band into Me and My Uncle, a vague echo of some of the early 70s segues from psychedelic space into cowboy territory.
6: My uncle went right down South Colorado, West Texas bound. We stopped over, each set a fade. That damn horn
1: just about halfway. You know the, the first set also included yet one more new song since the last time through.
6: 21 but one
1: will do 21 but one will do like Touch of Grey and throwing stones it would take another five years for the dead to properly release West LA fadeaway another piece of new material for the tape traders to circulate I hear the blues sleaze as being in an adjacent neighborhood to the grotty grittiness of Shakedown Street, maybe somewhere around the corner from the scene you see on the front cover of that album. And like Touch of Grey, Hunter had played it in his solo sets before Garcia adapted it for dead use. This is from November 18,
6: 1981, in Washington, D.C. Oh, quit my job for the mile. pathetic, it's a shame Those boys can't be more copacetic
1: well, 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 The early Dead versions had some lyrics that didn't survive into the final draft.
6: Here's what Ginger said she walks right gene,
5: nobody's
6: Here's what Ginger said
1: Something I love in this era is that the band was still playing some of their new songs nearly every night, still deeply excited about them and trying to break them in. After the third-ever Touch of Grey had been Encore the previous evening, the fourth-ever version opened the second set.
6: Must be getting early, clocks are running late, Paint my
1: morning sky, it's all funny. Marty Meyer, no relation to John, was keeping a set list that night. Touch of Grey and
13: Women are Smarter and Throwing, throwing Stones are all in there. I was like an avid sort of show list maker. I'm a baseball fan, and I always make an analogy between baseball and The Grateful Dead, which is you would get into it and you it's almost like a box score having the set list and knowing the set lists for the last, whatever, 12 months or whatever, and then trying to use that to predict the future.
1: <laughs> so we, we would always be doing that and
13: always keeping our
1: list. We'll direct you to David Gans's great essay, Grateful Dead Concerts Are Like Baseball Games, which we've linked to at dead.net slash deadcast. Marty caught two of the first four versions, there's an alternate lyric in these early takes that he took a bit personally. I see you've
6: got your list out. Say a piece yourself.
13: Yes, I get the gist of it, but it's all right. Definitely was my first time seeing Touch of Grey. We always thought it was hilarious, like during, you know, the Touch of Greys in 82. If you listen to those on the MSG shows, one of the lines is, so you got your list out, say your piece and piss off. And we always like thought maybe that was like, a, you know, we don't care about your lists or whatever. We're going to play what we want to play and you should enjoy it. And, you know, but that was like that was us internalizing.
1: Could be. Phil Lesch once told David Gann that the line referred to an intervention the band held with Garcia in Barcelona in late October 1981. Robert Hunter had already written the lyric by then. So perhaps Phil was internalizing, too, or maybe remembering an earlier intervention. With Grateful Dead lyrics, everybody's always right, which is maybe why the final choruses of this song become more inclusive. We will get by. We will get by. We will get by. We will will survive. The second set jam suite leads off with Bob Weir and John Perry Barlow's estimated profit, finding a very nice place. Charlie Miller. In
8: the second set during he's gone, somebody set off an M80 and the show never recovered. They were doing the nothing's going to bring him back and then you hear boom and the show just lost their that whole intense energy thing. Oh, weird, nothing's
5: going to bring him back. Ooh,
6: nothing's going to bring him back Cause
1: Well, that's just like your opinion, man. The jam continued on for a few more minutes with a coda before landing almost gently in drums and space. Whether or not the show is an all-timer, there were still some surprises.
0: Blue ball, just spinning, spinning
1: free dizzy with eternity bob minkin
7: throwing stones coming out of drums and the throwing stones it should have been like a, a morning dew or something but then wait they did black peter after not fade away
1: and after the third throwing stones appeared in the first set the night before and here out of space but what was more notable was where it was going my friend
8: had binoculars and i was
1: watching bobby
8: at the end of throwing stones and they got to the picture bright blue ball just spinning spinning free and we're like they had normally been the past few nights when they would either gone into day job or deal or something else right there bobby looked at jerry and he looks like he kind of just shrugged his shoulders and just started clapping and lashes, ashes all fall down they just went into it like they weren't sure about it they just went into it and then um they dropped into not fade away from that spinning,
15: spinning. ashes ashes all fall
6: down ashes ashes all fall 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 down
1: It was the song's first of many sing-along outros. Implicit behind the groove of Throwing Stones is a somewhat hidden iteration of the clave rhythm known as the bow diddly beat. It's never quite stated directly, but tonight, Weir states the quiet groove out loud.
8: And at the moment, that was the most amazing thing. Just the way they did this, bam, right into Not Fade Away. And I thought, I was like, oh my gosh, this is this is just the best thing ever. I didn't know I was gonna see it at like one out of every other show
1: for the next what 13 years. <laughs> the throwing stones not fade away transition
18: became one of the most repeated moves in the next years. Jeff Pincus. I remember the sweet sadness of high time and the rollicking good loving that helped bring us back down to Earth. The whole experience felt initiatory, not always pleasant, but profound. You see the
1: Blue's Encore by itself was nothing new or probably that exciting for most deadheads. One of the most common encores since its debut in 1974. But it wasn't often that the chorus was so literally topical. It was September 21st. The next day was the autumn equinox. and his friends navigated
18: themselves back to the Long Island Railroad and eventually made it home. My father was waiting up for me when I got home. How was the concert, he asked. Uh, great, I murmured as I made a beeline to my room. Life was never the same. Thank goodness.
5: Thank you. Good night.
0: We'd like to thank our guests in this episode, Alan Trist, John Meyer, Helen Meyer, Dan English, Bob Minken, Charlie Miller, Jim Wise, Eric Schwartz, Chris Goodspace, John Leopold, Johnny Dwork, Sean O'Donnell, Jeff Pincus, Marty Meyer, David Lemieux, and J. Christian Greer. Extra special thanks to friends David Gans and Blair Jackson for contributing audio from their interview archive. Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget to like and subscribe, and keep your tour stories coming by recording yours over at stories.dead.net. See you at the WoHop Noodle Shop. Executive Producers for the Good Old Grateful Dead cast, Mark Pincus and Doran Tyson. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mahan Productions and Jesse Jarno. Special thanks to David Lemieux, all rights reserved.